coming in hot. We got a couple really cool ladies here. We really, I'm really do. Excited. Last week was so fun. I know. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed listening back to it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I like know I have to do it, and it's like a chore. It's like I already lived that. Yeah, <laughs> I have to live it again. Um, but yeah, it was great. Yeah. It was really good. Such a good episode. Um, we hope you're all enjoying season fifteen so far. <laughs> um, but we're gonna start off this episode by giving a shout out to a person who left us a lovely review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Now. It says CC Lem Rib Mel. So we're just going to call you Mel. Is that is at the very end? That's so, your new name, <laughs> Mel or Lem. Um, so thank you so much. This review, it just it heartwarming, so heartwarming. Um, so thank you so much. And if you would like to leave us a review and get a shout out on the podcast, please do. Um, we obviously check it pretty frequently. Um, <laughs> to see what people think about us um but yeah thank you so much lem or mel or whatever your name might be and if you want to correct us just send us an instagram message just like ronnie <laughs> yeah just like ronnie <laughs> who we still just purposefully say her name wrong right um <laughs> so here's the deal you are uh we're not here to talk about the reviews i don't want to no, do that no we're done talking about that now it's time to talk about her street on the rocks with katie and Allie. this is a podcast that you can review on apple Podcasts <laughs> that talks about famous women in history we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance but keep in mind we are drinking the entire time and we are not historians no <laughs> we are googlers at best mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah documentary watchers mm-hmm. i'm really good at that i'm good it podcast binging yeah i really know what to do i know where to find things i was having a hard time this week and yeah. one of the podcasts i have downloaded ended up being horrible i'm very sorry don't it, leave them a bad review i though. won't yeah. i won't but it was an hour long and he didn't start talking about tony morrison until 45 minutes in nope Sorry, <laughs> sorry. You you made it that long, or you skipped ahead. I was skipping. Oh, sure, sure. sure. I was. Sure, sure, sure. I made it the first like fifteen twenty minutes, and you're like, I was like, oh, there's always like a little bit of cold open. But then I was like, this is getting excessive. <laughs> was he alone? Yeah. Oh, he's talking to himself. Uh-huh. Huh. Love I'm that. Gonna, I'm not gonna name drop. I had an opposite um, experience with podcasts oh, this week. So good. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. Oh, okay, but before. You, you know, we get into all that. You're busy. You're busy. You're mulching. That's what I was doing this week. You're out in your yard. You're pouring the mulch. Are you a brown, black, or red mulch? Black. Girl? Of course. Of course. Brown red mulch, mulch people are crazy. They're crazy. <laughs> brown mulch just looks like dirt. So yeah. why don't you just leave it? Um, black mulch forever. <laughs> it's so clean. Hashtag black mulch. So good. <laughs> <laughs> I love like color saving mulch yeah. <laughs> like, in the store. Uh, I wish I was working on my yard instead of teaching. Yeah. But I've only got a couple weeks left. Just a couple of, more weeks. Just a couple weeks of molding mines before exactly. I can work in the yard constantly. <laughs> but you're working in your yard. You're mulching. You have dirty mulch all over your hands. You're, they're covered. Um, so you can't pull out your phone and look up what these women look like. But Mm-mm. you might want to know, what in the world do they look like? So we're going to tell you. We're going to get a little... Physical 
physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? So on this week two <laughs> of banger season, I am doing Isabella Stewart Gardner. Mm. Now, she might not seem like a banger, but she is a banger. And we'll get to why, because she was also a banger in my life. But <laughs> she is a white Victorian era woman. She was very high class, almost like if you had an American nobility. Mm. She dropped hoop skirts decades before oh. the rest of the women in America dropped hoop skirts. She had an oval face and brown hair that was almost always tied back um and it's interesting she had brown eyes you know she just looks like a very normal looking person uh-huh. but it, it, in pictures of her and then in some portraits of her that were painted she has like a drop dropped lip on one side almost huh. like there was some sort of paralysis at one point huh. um but i couldn't really confirm that anywhere okay. so that is what she looks like she's a beautiful woman yeah sounds like it beautiful classy Perfect. as fuck <laughs> Uh, so I am doing legendary writer Toni Morrison this week. Oh. Toni is a light-skinned black woman who we most often picture as a middle-aged woman. She has a round, full face with small eyes and a really big smile. Mm. Um, and when she kind of like makes herself laugh and smiles, it's like the most beautiful thing in the world. Because she's oh. often talking about like, really serious things yeah um her hair is typically in gray locks that are pulled back um sometimes with a scarf um but sometimes just free-flowing and she wears a lot of like long flowy clothes long necklaces and just exudes a type of peace that can only exist after a lot of anger has been pushed out in the form of writing i yeah. think <laughs> the pictures of like tony morrison present day with like her gray locks tied mm. back she is stunning so beautiful a stunning woman i love the color of her hair yeah i just think it's gorgeous yeah i uh, people who have naturally grayed and wear it well i'm yeah. like, so jealous of because i don't know if i'm going to be able to do it Crossing my fingers. I think that the hair care is getting better in yeah, general. So I think so. We'll see. Um, my warning signs are pointing towards silver like my dad, yeah. which I'm really excited about. Uh-huh. So I'm hoping that that comes into fruition. Look fingers crossed. Who? All, All right. right. <laughs> you want to know what you're drinking? Yes. So this drink is called Venetian Palace. <sighs> and it is based off of a cocktail that she served during her life which is just champagne and donuts but i figured i couldn't just serve you champagne so we did have a side of lemon donuts with us this evening on china plates mm-hmm, let mm-hmm. so you know so what i did is i took vodka and um elder elderberry vodka and mango juice and poured it in the bottom of a cocktail not cocktail champagne flute and then poured pink champagne on top oh, of it perfect Cheers. Mm. That is unbelievably good. I love it. That's delicious. I love it like I love her. Now, Katie, I know this banger season is supposed to be bangery, so you should know about this woman, but you don't, just like a lot of our listeners, unless you're from Boston. Yeah. Maura, you might not know who this woman is. What do you know about her? Okay. I know like the little things that you've said. I believe she was like a curator. She Mm -hmm. collected a lot of art. There's some sort of thievery that goes on at some point, not from her, but from her collection. Um, I like, but that's really all I know is that she was a really rich woman who used her richness to buy cool shit. Yeah. (laughs) 
Like, do you mean my idol? Yes. <laughs> I am who you aspire to be. That's all I want is a house full of cool shit that everybody comes to see all yeah. the time. Yeah. That's like my literal dream. Yeah, but that's all I know. Yeah, she's great. She's a maximalist. She's insane and I eccentric as fuck and I love her. So let's start with sources. The podcast I referenced a little earlier was called The Gilded Gentleman, and he did a really nice job. He was from New York, and he went to her museum on a field trip as a kid So in high school. Um, he interviewed the woman who now works at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum who wrote the newest biography. Okay. So I also referenced that biography, which is called Isabella Stewart Gardner, A Life. And then, of course, the new Netflix documentary miniseries. And when I mean new, it came out in 2021. Like it is <laughs> right on the back burners. Um, and it's called This is a Robbery, the World's Biggest Art Heist. And it is, it got 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm. It is so good. Oh, I can't wait to watch it. It is four episodes. You and fiance could finish it tonight. <gasps> you would love it. How he would episodes? love it. Four. How long? Oh, one hour each. Okay. <laughs> tonight Doable. after we tonight. spend tonight two hours drinking together okay two Go home <laughs> two episodes on two episodes tonight two episodes tomorrow and i have a strict 9 p.m bedtime <laughs> i cannot okay <laughs> are we ready mm-hmm. so i'm gonna start by painting a picture and i brought a lot of visual aids tonight just as isabella stewart gardner oh would want me I to do spoiled. <laughs> you should so i'm gonna start by painting a picture of the museum Because this museum is one of the hidden treasures of Boston, if not this country. And I am not lying. And you've been a lot of places in this country. This is... In the world. Yes. This is one of the most amazing, shocking, like, under-the-radar places I've ever been. And suggest everyone get off their couch and go immediately. I need people to know that, like, when you recommend something, like, I take it deadly seriously like drive there tomorrow Katie. yeah yeah it's okay. so amazing okay so i'm gonna start on the streets looking up at this building it is a four-story brown box it looks like nothing especially in boston very underwhelming uh, very underwhelming it's behind it looks the, like an orphanage yes it's behind the actual boston museum of art okay. um and it's just another art museum with a random name it's not sponsored by the government so you don't really know what it is it's also got like a weird y in the middle yes and Hmm. then and guys all the pictures i'm showing katie are going to be posted the day this episode comes out so that you can watch along with us and they're in full color oh yeah this is exciting this was school ink (laughs) i stole this ink paid for by the baltimore county school system (laughs) thank you (laughs) but i am teaching (laughs) currently (laughs) but to the world Mm -hmm. okay but then you enter and you walk in and all you see is like backlighting because it's just arch pathways everywhere with all this light. You're like, where is this light coming from? Why is it so dark with all this light? And it's because the middle of the building is a botanical garden <gasps> with a glass ceiling over the top. What? And then it is, it's like these pink granite or marble all through the inside. And then all four stories is rooms around it with arches and balconies that you can lean over into this botanical garden and every room with a balcony is filled with art so like here are two pictures of my or here's a picture of my daughter leaning over one of the balconies into the garden what yes what is 
happening in Boston? It's the most beautiful place I have seen. Look at the outside this versus the inside. makes no sense. <laughs> Why do that to the outside? It looks terrible from the outside. It does. I mean, you can peer down from everywhere. And then also in the courtyard, I don't think it's on that side of the picture, but there's this massive head of Medusa that ironically you can't stop looking at. It's on the other side, like from where uh-huh. the picture's facing. And that's just the courtyard. That's not even the art. The rooms surrounding it are themed. There's a Dutch room, a Spanish room, etc. But they're not naive. The Spanish room recognizes the Islamic roots of Spain. And the cultures all mix together like they would in the real world. And there are famous names there. There are Rembrandt and Velasquez and Botticelli and Titian. Like, the rooms kind of look like this. They're like old Victorian houses. But then you start to look around and you notice a lot of old, like, odd things in the museum. There are no labels or signs on any of the art. She refused that. She hated it. She thought it made it look too much like a hospital. (gasps) So you just kind of walk through. It's an emotion you're getting. Um, And then you look around and you realize, hey, half of that window frame is an old piece of wood. Half of that ceiling is a fresco. And it hits you that the museum is the art. (sighs) Not the art is the art. But the literal building on the inside, the benches that you can sit on are literal. There's no, like, please don't touch this clause. You can sit on the actual mosaic benches. I'm handing Katie photos through all this. You can sit on them. There's mosaic benches. There's benches from churches from all over the world. There's pews. And you can sit and look at her art all day long. What? The curtains are from famous palaces. The furniture and fabric and wallpaper are from famous places the bricks the archways everything the windows the stained glass it is the most incredible place i've ever been in my life because she went around and picked up pieces of palaces and chateaus from around the world and brought them back to one place and that's all the vision of one eccentric woman from the gilded age i don't understand how i know this is all inside of that horrible ugly building here's also my children playing in a makeshift church in there oh my god amazing so you're gonna see all these pictures that katie's seeing i have more to come later in the show but now let's back up to when she was born now that we know what her life looks like her her vision looks like isabella stewart was born and also she hyphenated her last name which is boss's shit yeah in this era for the gilded age yeah Isabella Stewart was born in New York City on April 14th, 1840. Her dad was David Stewart. He was a wealthy linen merchant, and her mom was Anna Stewart. While her family was very wealthy and privileged, they weren't like Rockefeller money. That's not what they were. However, when she was born, Mm -hmm. however, her father saw the writing on the wall. He saw the Industrial Revolution coming, and he started to invest in a lot of small things. And over time, that made him extraordinarily wealthy. She grew up in Manhattan, although she has been adopted by Boston. She was originally a New Yorker. I'm sorry, Red Sox fans. (laughs) Boston, um, or no, good for Red Sox fans, bad for Yankees fans. (laughs) Boston took her. Uh, Boston has definitely claimed her. They call her the queen of the back bay. 
From ages 5 to 15, she attended nearby girls' academies in Manhattan where she learned art, music, dance, Spanish, and French like girls did at that time. (laughs) High-class girls. She also attended Grace Church where she learned religion, art, music, and ritual. At age 16, though, her family moves to Paris because a lot of the Industrial Revolution is happening in Europe, and she enrolls in the School for American Girls. One of her classmates includes a wealthy girl with the last name of Gardner, which is a family from Boston. While there, she goes to Italy. She visits this amazing household where this person has collected a whole bunch of art from the Renaissance, and he just lets people come into his house and see his art. And she goes, okay. That's exactly what I want with my life. Exactly. So it becomes her dream to, if she inherits money from her dad, which she has three siblings, so she's like, I'm going to inherit some money. Maybe if one of my siblings dies, which everybody died back then, I'll get a lot of money. We'll see. Then I'm going to invest in a collection of my very own one day. Fingers crossed it's Jason. We'll see. (laughs) We'll see what happens. When she turns 18, she returns to New York, but then shortly after moves with her classmate, Julia Gardner, to Boston. Oh, my gosh. And then you tell me that Boston marriage, I'm going to die. She meets her brother. (gasps) Okay. Not where I was going. No. I was hoping they would be like lesbian lovers. No, I wish. But they are best friends from like high school on. I love Best friends from high school on and meets her brother. Now. That's the best way to ensure you'll be friends for life. I know. (laughs) I know. Marry into the family. (laughs) I have some experience. So (laughs) she meets Jack. Jack is three years older than her. Like the first time they meet, they're like not that into each other. But. The Gardner family, like, let me get this, like, Jack and his sister Julia, their dad's last name is Gardner, but their mom's last name is Peabody. (gasps) So they have some money. (laughs) They have some money. Wow. The Peabody's pretty much own Baltimore. Wow. They are getting (laughs) candy and popcorn at the movie theater. They really are. (laughs) They really are. They're all. They're not sneaking anything in. The Gardner Peabody family is loaded. (laughs) (laughs) They are loaded, loaded, loaded. And he is Boston's most eligible bachelor. (gasps) But they fall in love. And when she is 20 years old, she marries him and leaves her house to live in Boston with Jack. A magical city. A magical city. It's cold as fuck, but magical. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But about five months after Jack and Isabel were married, there's records of a cemetery plot being bought, and we think it's a stillborn baby. Oh, that's sad. This is uh, proof that people had sex before they got married in the Victorian yeah. era because, you know, it's five months after. And then also just something they didn't really talk about. Yeah. Jack and Isabella do have a son, though. He's born in 1863. She's 23 years old. Got married at 20, had a kid at 23. I'm sorry, Isabella. <laughs> Get off of my territory. <laughs> but then that son at two years old dies. <laughs> The, the Wikipedia article said pneumonia, but the biography said of some sort of child illness that we probably have antibiotics for now. Right. One year later, Isabella suffered another late-term miscarriage. Oh, my God. And she went to the doctors, and the two were told that they could not bear any children together. Oh, that's so sad. Obviously, she's devastated. That's yeah. the job of a Victorian wife. Yeah. Like, she thinks this is what she's supposed to do. And then immediately following that, Jack's sister, her best friend from childhood, dies. <gasps> no. 
And she's extremely depressed and withdrawals from society. She's done. She's like, this is it. I can't have babies. My best friend's dead. What do I do? Well, and your husband is a constant reminder of both. Uh-huh. Because not only is he like this man that you're like, every time you look at him, you're like, I can't have his kids. And then you look at him and you're like, and your sister is my best friend. That's how we met. And she's gone. Right. <gasps> oh, it's devastating. No. So Jack takes her to the doctor, and as they did back then for rich people, they said, you need a vacation. Go to, <laughs> go to the sea. Go to Europe. Oh. Go to Europe and get some sorry, fresh air. Right. For, poor, for less fortunate women, was go to the sea. Go stand by a river <laughs> and <laughs> inhale. That's what, like, Beth March did. They're like, go to the sea. Yeah, they're like, go to Europe. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Isabella is so ill when they leave Boston that she has to be taken onto the ship on a stretcher. She's been so, like, invalid and depressed that she won't move. The couple spent almost a year traveling through Russia, Scandinavia, but they spend most of their time in Paris. Also, can you imagine being depressed back in the day and not even having, like, movies to watch? No. No. You had to, like, keep your eyes open and read a book? God, (laughs) the mental energy. And, like, also, as a woman, they're probably saying crazy things about you, too. Yeah. You know? Like, she's manic. Yeah. uh She's hysterical. Yeah. Like, those are the crazy, like, types of diagnoses diagnoses that women were getting. Yeah. So the trip does have the desired effect on Isabella's health, probably because her husband just was, like, spending time with her. (laughs) He was probably, like, taking time off work. (laughs) You know what I mean? I kind of like that idea, though, of, like, do you think it was kind of code? Like, she needs to be in Europe with With you. you. (laughs) Please give some time and attention to the wife that you have. So this really becomes a turning point. First, she starts her lifelong habit of keeping scrapbooks of her travels because she burnt a lot of her letters and didn't keep a journal. We don't know a lot about her personal thoughts, which is crazy because there's a lot of myths about her life that came out in the press at that time because she goes on to be a socialite. So everything we have is newspaper clippings. Okay. But none of it is her except for that journal. Mm. And she'll like collect napkins from restaurants she liked and like things like that. So we know what she liked based on what she had I love that so then she comes home and starts to cement her reputation as a fashionable high-spirited socialite she says yes I can't have children she says this in her brain this is her talking into the mirror to herself yes I can't have children this is really hard so I need to change the frame of mind of what my life is going to be so she became an eccentric wild chaotic strong childless independent Victorian woman i mean what could be better (laughs) she's changing the world (laughs) like okay i can't have kids i'm gonna be chaotic neutral (laughs) that's what she's doing i think she's chaotic good she might be oh my god she might be now i don't know much about that whole thing um is that a D &D thing i have no idea if it stems back to D &D. I always just use it when i'm memeing people (laughs) or like thinking about memes I refer to myself as chaotic neutral. (laughs) She is definitely on the good side. So she abandoned hoop skirts. Like I said, she loved being in Paris and they wore like, remember when Marie Antoinette started wearing, stopped hoop skirts and started wearing more like nightgown type dresses and all the women in France did that. Mm -hmm. She does that five to eight years before the women in America start doing it. She walks, I know, she walks through Boston with a lion at her side, just like on a leash. And then (laughs) after the Red Sox won a game, she was so excited that she goes to the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra (gasps) in her Red Sox gear. 
Baltimore? The Boston <laughs> Symphony Orchestra. The, the other lesser BSO. <laughs> but she just goes in her Red Sox gear because she's so excited that they won. She's like, I'm just going to go to the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Okay. Also, frankly, this is why I, I'm trying to become like kind of a baseball girly. Baseball girls are cute. They're so cute. Because <laughs> I love that you can support a team that mm-hmm. someone from the Gilded Era also supported. supported. <laughs> it's I very fun. Love it's that. very fun. I think it's so great. So I love that she was a Boston Red Sox. I fan. know <laughs> she really was, and that's why I said, "Sorry, New York. Yeah. They really have her. If they took her in, you should have done something about it." Yeah. She started to scoff at the ideals set for women. Her passion and tragedy helped her define herself. But she wasn't really a prototypical feminist. She was friends with a lot of suffragettes, but was not herself a suffragette. Mm. And she had many views held by privileged white people of the time, but she also had some that weren't. Like, she was very pro-immigration because she traveled so much. So she's a very interesting person because she wasn't outspoken politically, and we don't have journals, so we can't posture at what she actually thought. So it's a little bit later, a couple years later, and her brother-in-law, Joseph Gardner, dies. And they adopt his three sons. So now Isabella and Jack have three boys that they're Ah. taking care of. I think they're like 10 and older, though. So they're like kind of done in the young cooking. And she's just got to get them through middle and high school and get them off to boarding school or whatever they do. But she's, yeah, she gets the mother and thing over with. But then the couple continues to travel. They go to the Middle East, to Europe, to the Americas, to Asia. They start learning about other cultures and especially about art. In just a decade, they traveled to more than 39 modern-day countries. That's so many countries. I... And again, without any of our modern distractions to get you through those long journeys. And they're on (sighs) boats. There are not airplanes, Katie. Literally boats and trains Uh and horse. That is what they are working with. And donkey. In fact, she rode 25 miles on a donkey. (gasps) And all she did in her little stamp collection was talk about how much she loved it. Meanwhile, her husband is like, it's so fucking hot. <laughs> I don't want to be on this donkey. But she loved it. Oh, my She was gosh. like, okay, I I'll hope, take a 25-mile journey on a donkey. I hope to God she wasn't riding a side saddle on that donkey. She would never. <laughs> <laughs> Isabella would never. So the earliest works in her collection started in 1891. Her father passes away. And ding, ding, ding. So did her other siblings. They had already died. So she is the sole. (laughs) Fuck you, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) Thumbs out. She is the sole beneficiary to his $1.75 million estate, which in today's money is $78 million. (laughs) The sole beneficiary. So she buys. She murdered them for sure. Oh, poison. <laughs> you know how girls do. Arsenic poison. is a girl's best friend. <laughs> <laughs> you know how they say. So she bought the concert, which is a very famous Ver, um, Vermeer painting uh, at auction in Paris. And she's buying here and there from countries around the world. But the collection really starts to pick up in the late 1890s. The couple now have two inheritances and they decide, let's live off of Jack's millions of dollars and spend my millions of dollars because they have two inheritances. Why not throw caution to the wind? (laughs) You don't have kids, so you don't need a trust fund for anybody. Just do it up. 
Um, so I've never been more jealous of someone in my life. <laughs> Talk to me about it. <laughs> she was also allowed to audit classes at Harvard because she was so wealthy. They were like, yeah, you can come take some art classes. Sit in. We won't give you any credits or anything. So she's taking classes at Harvard as a woman in Boston because Boston's like, yeah, we like you. We like your family, whatever. Peabody, Stewart, Gardner, you're oh free to come God. here. So she is rapidly building a world-class, like, pieces in a museum. For example, uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum has one of the earliest bought Buddha statues in America because other museums didn't care about Chinese art at the time. Remember, at that point, everybody was like, Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. And she was like, no, there are, like, art in other places. So her museum has one of the earliest Buddha Chinese art collections in America because she decided it was important. And that's not all. She buys paintings and sculptures and tapestries and photographs and silverware and ceramics and manuscripts and architectural elements like doors and stained glass and mantelpieces. And she's planning on holding on to them to put in her home. So in the early 20th century, Isabella travels with her friend Edmund Wheelwright to collect for a group of people who asked for her to buy for them the Harvard Lampoons. <laughs> the Harvard Lampoons go, we really think you could do us some justice. So she goes, she buys some pieces. They are in the Lampoon Castle. We don't know how much worth she added to the Lampoons because they have such a guarded secrets yeah. in, um, in the Harvard Lampoons. I want to be in that building so fucking bad. I know. The same way I want to be in like the master's like golf rooms. I'm like... Let me in. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be here. I want to see it. Yeah, she's wheeling and dealing with the big dogs is what <sighs> I'm trying to say. Many men of art uh, get along really well with her throughout her career. She had a male art connoisseur friends, and she had some that she would compete with, that they would try to buy the same art. Um, and they would purchase and purchase, and men would sometimes have to take her money and buy for her because she wasn't allowed in certain art dealing places. Um, and because of this she owns art from some of the most famous i mean she owns degas and monet's and rembrandt's and like she owes very famous art which is of course why she's spoiler alert gonna get robbed her favorite because people see women as targets and they still do today okay her favorite place to collect art from was venice italy she loved venice Mm -hmm. loved it so she based the inside of her future museum after a venice palace so In the late 1890s, Jack and Isabel are arguing over what to do with their art collection. Isabella is like, let's put it in our home, all over our home. And he goes, no, we need a purposefully built museum to house this art. It's too much for our home. We can't just hang a mantle on the wall. It should be a mantle. And she's like, no, I want to live with it. It's mine. (laughs) So they're fighting back and forth. And then Jack suddenly dies. (gasps) No. And she is now alone. So in his honor... She purchases a piece of land in Fenway, Boston, and decides to build a museum in honor of her husband, modeled after a Renaissance palace, saying pretty much, you won the fight. You won. Palace for you. (laughs) 
She was deeply involved in every aspect of the design. Her architect joked that uh, he was only there for structural soundness. <laughs> he said she came every day with a lunchbox and her dogs. Stop. <laughs> I hope she wore a little hard hat, too. I bet. <laughs> and the building, uh, she said, needed to be completely covered in a glass ceiling over this garden, which was the first of its kind in America. And the architects go, that's impossible. And she goes, no, it isn't. <laughs> figure it out no it's not because i'm possible <laughs> make That's this happen said. um <sighs> yeah and she i mean originally is like living on the fourth floor art on the second and third and like the first floor around the like um botanical garden is like a music hall originally after the building she spends years getting it built and then she spends a full year carefully installing her art collection exactly how she wants it in her personal aesthetic the paintings, sculptures, furniture, everything is right where she wants it. For example, one of her most famous artworks that's there is Titian's The Rape of Europa, a very famous painting. Mm -hmm. It hangs above, like, some of her art is hung, like, there's fabric on the wall, and then the art is hung on the fabric on the wall. And the fabric that this is hung on is, like, some green silk out of one of her gowns. She was like, I just love this silk with this painting. Cut my gown up. Put it up there on the wall. What? She's crazy. She's mad. She is. She's wild. Um, so she wants to check the acoustics for the grand opening, but she doesn't want anybody to get a sneak peek and spill the beans. So she gets in cahoots with like uh, the blind institution in Boston and is like, let's have them all come in and listen to some music in there and make sure that they think the sound is good. Because wow. they couldn't see the art. Yeah, That's amazing. She's like, let's see if their ears think it's good. Wow. Okay. So the museum's private grand opening has a performance from the other BSO. It's June, it's June 1st, 1903. It's cold, even by Boston standards. And there is a long line of carriages pulling up in front of this square brown building. People start pouring in in their Victorian dresses, and she is standing at the top of the stairs in this beautiful courtyard in a black, straight-hanging dress, with a long string of pearls and diamonds. Uh, and famously, she said, I'll serve the people what they want with champagne, but they're also getting donuts. <laughs> champagne and donuts for all the rich folk. And that's, and that's how served. Dunkin' Donuts was started. <laughs> In Boston, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> One of her male counterparts, Jack Sargent, was very famous uh, painter and he got famous for the scandalous painting he did of Madame X who was like a woman of questionable repute or whatever mm. and um, he couldn't really display it anywhere and got some bad flack for it because she uh, you know it was like va va boom mm -hmm. um, so she talks to some of her art friends she's like introduce me to Jack Sargent need to see this painting yeah. they meet each other she sees the painting they become best friends <laughs> Um, he actually paints three portraits of her through her life. One is her in a black dress with her hands clasped in front of her. That's from the night of the opening of the museum, I think. Um, they debated over position and for months and how to stand, but she looks so powerful. Yeah. And the background is is I think iconic. Mm -hmm. And I have a picture of that portrait from being there and I didn't even know it was her. Yeah. I just took a picture of it because I was like, it's stunning. Then there is one 
that is famous because it's her in Venice, which she loved, and she's bursting in off of the balcony into her Italy, like, hotel room or whatever, her probably penthouse. Um, and I think she looks so sexy and yeah. so free. And I, there's a no way they didn't have a relationship after her husband died. No. And also, it's like, there's so much energy in this painting. And, like, just, like, weird. Like, her necklace is so long. Yeah. Like, the it's really intense. Like, you can see her fingers in the glass panes being reflected. Like, yeah. it's so... This is one of those things that, like, you can see that this was an image burnt into his brain. Oh, yeah. He he just saw it and was like, I'm painting that. Yeah. And then the other one is her later in life. Hmm. She never let anyone see her after she started having strokes except for Jack Sargent. Hmm. And he asked her, can I paint you like this? And she's so vulnerable and, like, shrouded in white, almost like hmm. a nun. Um, so I think like there's got to be some sort of even if it's just emotional love there because she allowed him to see her powerful and sexy and vulnerable and like all these things. And I just that all those pictures are hung up in her museum. Mm. So I just love that her own museum yeah. has portraits of herself <laughs> and those aren't even the only ones <laughs> I find. that It's like family photos back yeah. then. Like you're putting family photos in your own collection, which is great. Months after this, the public, the, the museum gets open to the public and her dream comes true that she could bring art mm. to America and people could just visit her house. In 1919, Isabella Stewart Gardner suffers the first series of strokes mm. uh, and she dies five years later mm. on July 17th, 1924 at 84 year, years old. Ugh. She was buried in the Gardner family tomb in Cambridge between her husband and her son. But that is not even close to the end of her story. <laughs> her will is iconic because there's millions in endowments and stipulations to her museum. The first part, some of it, not that interesting. She gives a lot of money to help children, a lot of money to help animals. But in her will, she's very distrusting of museum culture. Huh. Because what we forget is that she's the first museum like this that's an interactive experience. They do that now yeah. because people like it. Museums didn't do that. They were very cold. Like sterile. Sterile. Mm -hmm. She has changed it. So a couple of things. One quote in her will is this will for, be for the enjoyment of the public forever. Another stipulations, none of her installations can ever be permanently changed. So they can be taken down to be fixed. They can be taken down to loan to other museums. But you cannot change a room in that place ever. It's her vision from the moment she put it up. You have to hold a mass in the courtyard on her birthday every year. <laughs> She's a good Boston girl, Boston Catholic. She pro I don't think she was Catholic, actually, but she has. A, you have to hold, like, a church service. Um, and she says in her will, the museum was named, like, the Fenway Museum because it was built on Fenway, just like Fenway Park. Mm -hmm. But after her death, she says you must change the name of the museum to Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. She cemented her own <sighs> name in history but didn't want it to be there while she was alive. Yeah. How humble. Also, what is Fenway? Is that like a road? Uh, I think it's like the area in Boston, or in Boston, <laughs> next. Oh my God, Boston, next to one of the bays. I'd have to look it up. Oh, it's okay. like Fenway Park, and this is like Fenway Road, and like she was in the. Okay, it so was it's like, like the, Fenway area. This is like the area. Okay, yeah, I see. So that's the deal with that, and okay. then. Um, one of the last things in the will says, if any of these rules are broken, they're to auction off all of my art and give the money away. <laughs> 
you can't break the rules none of them and there's a lawyer sitting around <gasps> waiting for somebody to break rules because they want to make that money off that art that. now other than all of that <laughs> there is a so so famous four-part miniseries on netflix that people are falling in love with that details the largest art theft in history like i said earlier it's 81 percent on rotten tomatoes and if you know anything about rotten tomatoes 60 percent or higher is good uh 80 is great because it's the biggest art theft in history and it's unsolved people are really drawn to it so i'm only going to give you details from the first episode of the miniseries because i don't want to like spoil okay what happens so picture this okay. we're back to picturing <laughs> it is march in boston in 1990 so cold but it's not just march <laughs> it's saint patrick's day <gasps> And Boston is a highly yeah. Irish-American city. So the police are going to be busy. I'm sorry, what year is it? 1990. <gasps> this is 33 years ago. In 1990, there are very little forensics to speak of. In 1990, security technologies. Not as good. Everything's a little bit blurry. In 1990, there is no art department in the FBI. So... Museum guards come in the morning after St. Patrick's Day to open up the museum and switch off with the night guards. They immediately, immediately notice all the cameras have been turned up. <gasps> Somebody has pushed all the security cameras so you can't see. The security office door is ajar. They open the door to the office. There's an empty frame sitting on one of the chairs and there's a crowbar on the floor. And they think, where are the night guards? Like, are they bloody somewhere in this museum? And are the bad guys still here? So they call the police. The police come. And because this is pre-forensics, they corrupt the fucking crime scene to hell. The FBI comes and they have no art division. So they are shit out of luck. No idea what they're doing. They find the two night guards tied up <gasps> in the basement with duct tape around oh. their eyes and heads. <sighs> the story is. Two men dressed as police officers come to the front door and buzz in. They let the police in because they're Boston police. It's St. Patrick's Day. Right. Let them in. The police come into the office and say, we have a warrant for your arrest to the two security guards. And to be clear, one of the security guards, Richard, is like a party boy who smokes a lot of weed. So <laughs> he's like, sure. So he stands up, gets handcuffed. The other guy gets handcuffed. They're duct taped and put in the basement. There are several tricky things about this theft, though. Um, these guys knew exactly what they were doing. They had cased the joint. They knew where the pieces of art were. They took the two most famous Rembrandts. They took the, um, Vermeer, Vermeer, who, which he only ever painted 33 paintings ever. <gasps> they, uh, the, the Rembrandt self-portrait was taken down off the wall, but they were rushing, so they forgot it. <gasps> so it was there on the floor, but they didn't take the painting. They took the Degas. They took the Monets. They took the Napoleon Fennel, which is the gold eagle that was on top of his flag <sighs> that he was carrying. All these things that she had painstakingly bought. They took three-fourths of a billion dollars worth of art. Oh, my God. From this museum. And you can't just take some of the most famous art in history and sell it. You have to know where you're going to unload it yeah. ahead of time. Yeah. And that's what makes it nearly impossible to find. This is a big time theft. So the first thing they do, where's Miles Connor? He's the biggest art thief in America. 
turns out, suspiciously, he was locked up that night. Hmm. That night. Okay. So he's out of the question. He's communicating with the police. He calls him and goes, I hear you're looking for me. He's in the documentary (laughs) telling us all the ways he didn't steal this art, even though he sent his cronies in, possibly. The the Irish and Italian mob were in full swing in Boston in the 90s. And you could use famous art to buy weapons. So every mobster is on blast right now. But also, the mobsters, if they stole it, can then hide it somewhere, say they heard something in prison, and use it as a way to get out of jail. Art is a get-out-of-jail-free card. If you rob a museum yeah. and then say where it is, you win. You just saved a priceless piece of art. Yeah. There was a new museum director only six months before who had just started. The nighttime security guards, one had just put in their first two weeks. One was covering for someone who called out. So it's kind of like maybe they're involved. Very suspicious. The things we know is it's definitely an inside job. Yeah. Somebody knew the museum well because the door system works that if you are buzzed in, all the other ones lock from the inside so you can't get out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But 20 minutes before the robbery, somebody had gone down apparently to smoke a cigarette. And when they came back in, the back door had like the thing out. Mm-hmm. So it stayed open. So you could escape right out that back door. Mm-hmm. We also know that they wasted time. The robbers were there for 81 minutes. 10 minutes in a robbery and you're sweating bullets. Yeah. They were not scared of getting caught. Wow. Somebody knew they were there and let them be there. Oh and they're cutting art out of frames. Ugh. Terrible. Um, so they did that so they could transport it easier. And they did take some less expensive pieces of art, but they took mostly the big things, which is so sad. They also went in the security office and took the videotape. They also took the printout of, you know, in a museum when you get close to a picture and it buzzes? Nope. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so in museums, I have kids. That's why I know this. <laughs> if you get too close to a piece of art, it goes just to remind you to back up. But it's also an alarm sent to the office so that they know somebody might have touched this, somebody might have moved it. So there's a printout that comes through the printer constantly. Touch this in the blue room. This got moved in this room. So they rip that off the printer. But they didn't realize because it's the 90s and people don't understand digital that it was also being saved in the computer. So we have exactly <gasps> who was in what room at what time. And how many people? And yeah, there's only two police officers. But the problem is they didn't know whether they tied up the nighttime guards before or after. Like, did they help and then get tied up? Or did they just get tied up? And the documentary tries to clear this up, but doesn't clear it up because you don't know. Because one of the crazy things is the self-portrait of Rembrandt, and this is all in the first episode, that gets taken down off the wall and set there. None of the robbers ever went in that room after they were buzzed in. Only a security guard went through that room before they were buzzed in. So it's like, how how could they have taken it down if nothing else ever buzzed in there? Mm. Very suspicious. Mm. In the Dutch room, also, there is a secret panel that opens, like Dimitri, in, <laughs> in Anastasia. The boy, open up the wall. How would you know that's there unless it's an inside job? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. Um, there's just, the problem is the nighttime guards are idiots, so there's, like, no way they helped with this. Like, there's so much going on. But um, this is pretty much what they walk into. It is a museum with frames on the floor (gasps) that are just decimated. It's so sad. They start with a million dollar reward. It gets up to a $10 million reward. This is half a billion dollars worth of art. 
for a lot of people, like I said, it's a get out of jail free card. There are calls coming in from all over Boston. And again, the FBI has no art division. So they just put this 26 year old guy on it and let him oh be. Oh my gosh. And it's like the FBI that you're supposed to be good at this. But at that point, the FBI was too focused on like getting the mob. So they were like, let's give this to the young guy because no one cares about art. But now, 33 years later, we've not recovered from these thefts because of Isabella. You know, she wished this. And she said nothing in her museum can be changed. So now when you go there, there are empty frames on the wall exactly where the pictures would have been. They're sticking true to her wish to not move anything. So when you go in. There's like an app you can like hold your phone up and see what the art could have been Ugh. like what you would have been looking at. But the, it's just in the museum, the stolen things. Ugh. And this theft is a dagger in my heart because they weren't stealing from a big public gallery. They right. targeted a woman. Yeah. And a lot of the people in the documentary say people cased this joint because it was safe. It wasn't yeah. a government building you're stealing from. Yeah. They didn't have fancy police officers. They had a high guy, yeah. you know, a guy who smokes too too much weed and comes in on the weekends to watch it at night. Yeah. So this is the National Gallery. Right. They're targeting this woman and her private collection. And it's sad to me. This woman who wanted to bring art to the people, who was yeah. eccentric and fun and independent, and in her death, this has been taken from her. So I hope she's not turning over in her grave, and I hope this is a Mona Lisa story where we find it and it goes Ugh. right back where it belongs. I would love that. And that's the story of Isabella Stewart Gardner. I love her. I love this museum. It makes me want to go to Boston right now. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> it's an amazing story. It's an amazing museum. And I think Boston has so much stuff. It's so easy to overlook. It is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, if you're going there on a family trip, the only reason we ever heard about it is because we got the city pass. Did we talk about that on the show recently? I don't know if we did. So a city pass is like there are certain cities that have so many places to visit that you can buy one ticket and it gets you into a lot of places. Mm -hmm. One of the free places in Boston wasn't the Boston Tea Party ship, idiots. It was the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. So we went in on a whim because it was free, and then we were like, this is the fucking coolest place I've ever been. <laughs> I love it. I know. Perfect. That's her story. So great. So much fun. And now we have to get more drinks and talk about some books. <laughs> great. We'll be right back. <laughs> Literature. And here we are, back to talk about Tony. <laughs> Tony. This is the actual banger of the episode. So I wish there was more personal information on her. I, I really, really do. Because I was so excited because she's so influential. And a lot of the things about her really focus on her work, which like I really appreciate. But also it's like it's hard then to get a sense of like who she was as a person. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I still, I love Tony. I love her story. I love her work. So this is going to be, this is going to be a good one. I think I'm ready. Do you want to know what you're about to drink? It is the most beautiful <laughs> cocktail. So, so far, this is the prettiest cocktail of the season. One of four. So far. Um, okay. So this is called the pinkest cocktail. And that's kind of a play on, uh, one of her books, the bluest eye. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is tequila, Aperol pineapple juice, 
fresh grapefruit juice, sweetened condensed milk, and a dash of cinnamon. And you garnish with rosemary and grapefruit. Cheers. Hmm. Hmm. When you go in, weird. it kind of smells like a Christmas tree when yeah. you hit the rosemary, but then you sip it. It's very good. I don't even know what to make of this drink. It's, it's so weird. It's very, the condensed milk makes it very, like, dairy yeah. but mm. it's, um, mm. with the grapefruit juice, I just didn't expect it. My, if I tried to do something like this, it would curdle immediately. <laughs> wow. I don't even, yeah, because there's. There's a lot of flavors going on because you can yeah. definitely take the, taste the tequila. You can mm-hmm. definitely taste the citrus and the cinnamon. Yeah, there's a lot happening. I feel like this a is a happening. this is a four seasons drink. Yes. There's one thing: <laughs> yes. winter, spring, summer, and fall. Because Tony Morrison is timeless. There um, we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, what do you know about Tony Morrison? So, I know she was a writer. Mm-hmm. I think she won some Pulitzer prizes and maybe like the first in something. Um, I know that she wrote a lot about the hardships of black people and black women. Um, but I mean, other, I, I don't know a lot other than that. Like, I don't know specific details, like how much of an activist she was. I don't know if she was like a professor like Angela Davis or if, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know the details of her life. Yeah. So my sources today. Is it depressing? I knew more about Isabella of Castile no. than I knew about Toni Morrison. I'm embarrassed. No, no, because I don't think there's a lot that people know about her personally. Mm. I mean, I did a full week of research on her, and I still feel like I don't quite know her as a person. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Um, but I got a lot of this from um, Wikipedia. Um, there's a documentary about her called Toni Morrison Remembers on YouTube. And there is also, um, there's a very helpful crash course black american history youtube video which was really great there's like the little animated ones john love um no it wasn't john green but it was the guy who took over yes yes um but yeah so those are my sources and i also want to point out that like i am not like a literary scholar um so if i don't go deep enough into the nuances of her her work that's why and also like i was telling ali before we started i was like these are like very emotionally powerful like books about like black history. So like I also don't really want to like tell people how they're supposed to feel about. It. Yeah, it's very the it, Toni Morrison's work is so much about the black experience. Yes, mm-hmm. and it's like I didn't have that experience. Yeah, I can learn from your work. Oh yeah, but like I don't have a, a parallel to that. Right, but I think that's the great thing about it is like it is so emotionally charged mm-hmm. that like you can experience it like no matter who you are right. and like you just emotionally connect to it um so let's get into it chloe what Ardelia wafford <laughs> right off right out of the gate right out of the gate, right out of the gate. <laughs> was born in lorraine ohio to rama and george wafford on february 18th 1931 she was the second of four children Her mother was a homemaker from Alabama, and her father was a welder from Georgia. Her parents were devout Methodists who instilled in her a sense of heritage and language through telling traditional African-American folk tales and ghost stories and singing songs. She said, I have never heard a voice as beautiful as my mother's, like when she sang to me. So this is a very, like, rich, like, culturally rich household, which I love. 
Um, but they also carried a lot of pain from racist encounters that they had had in their life from their life in the South. I mean, when her father was 15, he witnessed the lynching of two young black men, which Tony said affected him for the rest of his life. I'm sure. How can you see that and not be like and be okay? Yeah. You know? And she said, she goes, he never, you know, like, he didn't like to talk about it in specifics. And, you know, he would say sometimes, like, oh, but I didn't see the bodies. And she was, she goes, like, he definitely saw the bodies. Like, there's no way he fucking didn't. Like, ugh, just horribly painful. Um, Tony's childhood was not easy, even though they were further north. The family was poor, and she said they were evicted from every house they ever lived in because even though her father worked three jobs, they still could never make rent. And when Tony was two years old, their landlord set their apartment on fire while they were inside of it just because they had gotten behind on their rent. But then he loses the I whole know. house. That makes no sense. Well, I'm wondering if he was going to claim it like as an insurance thing of like, oh, they weren't they were behind on their rent. So they set the house on fire. <sighs> what an idiot. <sighs> I mean, and to put this into perspective, last week we did Annie Oakley and mm-hmm. she died in Ohio in 1926. Mm-hmm. So this is five years after that. Tony Morrison is born. Yeah wild her father was very angry and bitter towards white people he wouldn't let any into their house tony described a time when like a white man came in and like for something or whatever and her father picked him up and threw him down the stairs like the front steps Mm. And someone asked her, they're like, were you afraid of like that kind of violence? And she was like, honestly, it made me feel really safe. She was like, my dad was not going to let any kind of shit like that happen to me and my siblings. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, as rough as it was, you know, she was like, that was what he did to keep us safe, you know. But like their insurance guy was a white guy. So she was like, every time he came through, like, they'd be like, all right, you're going to be outside of the house. I'll come out and meet you. (laughs) Her father just had. He had a lot of shit going on and like, you know, it just, it sucks. I mean, he had a very like, this is my home and like, I, I can't have, like after he saw the atrocities in the South, I'm sure Mm -hmm. he's like, I cannot have you bastardizing my home. Right. So stay outside. Exactly. Um, but despite all of this, the family, she says, she goes, I want to make this clear. We never went into despair. She said these experiences, you know, demonstrated how to keep your integrity and claim your own life in the face of, you know, acts of monumental crudeness. So I think that was also a big takeaway from her childhood. She goes, bad shit happened, but also like we never let us like we never let it get us down, you know. Um, But when World War II broke out and men were sent off to war, Tony's father was too old to serve. So for the first time in his life, he got a job in a shipyard that actually paid decent money. Okay. Because it was kind of like, okay, well, now that all, like, the eligible white men are gone, like, okay, now we're going to hire, like, the eligible black men. Right. (laughs) Um, So the family was financially stable for the first time in their life, so they bought a house, and things just kind of calmed down a little bit. Mm. So... Tony often escaped into books as a child. Her favorite authors were Tolstoy and Tolstoy and Jane Austen, which she said came about because she goes back then the child section was just 
the lower shelves in the library. <laughs> so she said, once I got done with those books, I just kind of moved right up the shelves into the classics. <laughs> Started climbing. Yeah. I'm scaling the walls. <laughs> she basically lived at the library, reading for hours until they closed and she had to go home. Uh, but she said that since her grandparents came from the South where a white person could be fined for even teaching a black person to read, education was very important in her household. Her parents saw it as an act of rebellion. So when she was 12 years old, she became a Catholic. I don't know where this like comes from. I don't know who else in her life is Catholic, but she's like, let's do it. She, she's yeah, she's doing it. And when she's baptized, she, you know, you choose a name during mm -hmm. your baptism. She chose the name Anthony after Anthony of Padua. This would eventually lead for her nickname, Tony. So that's where Tony comes from. So she's her going baptized Catholic name. Her baptized Catholic nickname, Tony. <laughs> love yeah. it. I love yeah. that. I mean, may as well. May as well. If you want to change your identity, it may as well be a baptized Catholic I one. I know. I know. <laughs> so Tony attended Larian High School. She was on the debate club. She was a part of the yearbook staff and the drama club. She was really, really active. She, in the documentary, she's like going through her yearbook photos and she's so cute in the yearbook photos. And I just, I love it. Um, she was also a domestic worker making $2 a week cleaning houses, but she had eventually spent so much time at the library during her downtime. They gave her a job there, which she much preferred to cleaning houses. Of course. <laughs> Let me stock shelves, baby. <laughs> the Dewey Decimal. I'm on it. So after graduating high school with honors, she enrolled at Howard University in whoa, Washington, D.C. in 1949. HBC. Mm -hmm. uh, she wanted to be around like fellow black intellectuals. Mm -hmm. You know, she was like, I am not as culturally enriched as I want to be in Ohio. No offense <laughs> to Ohio. But <laughs> so at first she was a theater student and she even toured with the Howard Players. But while she was doing this, she was moving around the segregated South for the first time time okay so she's seeing what her parents have told her about yeah because like discrimination and segregation was practiced in ohio but it was more of an understood thing and down here it was the law so when she got to the south it was a bit of a shock to have such hard legal lines drawn on things like buses and restaurants hmm. you know it was kind of she's like we did things in this way, but now it's like very much legally mandated. <laughs> uh, but despite this, she loved being in a community of creative black pioneers. Soon, however, she switched her major to English and she graduated with a bachelor's degree in 1953. She went on to earn a master's of arts from Cornell University in 1955, Ivy League. And her master's thesis was titled Virginia Woolf's and William Faulkner's Treatment of the Alienated. She taught English first at Texas Southern University in Houston, which I can't even imagine going even that far down south from 1955 to 1957. And then she came back to Howard University and taught there for the next seven years. While teaching at Howard, she met Harold Morrison, a Jamaican architect whom she married in 1948. Their first son was born in 1961, and she was pregnant with their second son when she and Harold divorced in 1964. After her divorce and the birth of her son Slade in 65, she began working as an editor for L.W. Singer a textbook division of the publisher Random House in Syracuse, New York. 
Two years later, she transferred to Random House in New York City, where she became their first black woman senior editor in the fiction department. Whoa! I know. And she did not waste any time using her position to bring more black voices into the literary world. One of the first books she worked on was the groundbreaking book, Contemporary African Literature, which was a collection that included work by Nigerian writers, um, Wole Soyinka, Chinua Achebe, and South African playwright Atoll Fugard. I probably pronounced all of those names incorrectly. I feel like you did well. Because <laughs> I forgot to look that up after I copy and pasted it from Wikipedia. <laughs> um, I'm always like <laughs> writing out pronunciation yeah. guides for my stupid, <laughs> stupid brain. <laughs> She also started publishing now household names like Angela Davis. Woo! She started publishing Angela Davis? Yes, she did. She I'm went to sorry. Angela Davis and she goes, you need to write an autobiography. Angela Davis was like, I'm 27. You've done enough. You've done <laughs> enough, like, Angie. I can't do this. And she, and she said, she's like, Toni Morrison. She was like, we would literally like commute around the city together. And she would talk to me about this. And she was like, how did the room feel when you walked in? Describe that. How did it smell? How were the people reacting to you? Let's get into it. And she really encouraged her to write her first autobiography again at 27. I'm sorry. Say. I need a Tony. Not that <gasps> I've done on. what Angela's done, but where's my Tony? Not like the Tony. I don't need a Tony. I need a Tony Morrison. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't acted on stage one bit. <laughs> Uh, and she also published an autobiography of boxer Muhammad Ali, who was going through his like personal Muslim renaissance that made white America really uncomfortable. So uncomfortable. And I love this, too, because she was talking about this and she was like, he was such a macho guy that he would not pay attention to me. He was not listening to me. I'd be like, I think that this is the direction this should go. And he was writing me off. She goes, and then I found out that. Uh, an old woman in Queen's house burned down or something like that in she and or Harlem and she goes and he just like swooped in and like helped her out and like replaced all her stuff. She goes, and then I realized, oh, he's a mama's boy. He needs like an older woman to like come in that he respects and tell mm -hmm. him what's up. So she goes, Well, all the men in the office were like, Muhammad, oh my gosh, like I love this fight. Like you're so strong. Like da 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 da. I'm so impressed. She goes, Hey, go over there. Sit down. We're going to do this. Write your book. And yeah. <laughs> she was like, I just told him straight up, like, you're going to get your butt in that chair and you're going to write chapter three over again because it's terrible. <laughs> you are bad <laughs> at grammar, Muhammad. And she goes, he just fell right into place <laughs> and listened to every word I said. <laughs> it's funny. Being kind to young people is hard. <laughs> Like, I try, like, and this is middle schoolers and high schoolers, but I try with soft gloves for, like, the first two quarters of the school year. And kids that are naturally susceptible to softness cave in. Yeah. Not everybody. Nope. You have to be like, stop. <laughs> Turn around. Yeah. <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> like, to a lot of people. Yeah. Or they will not listen. Yep. Treat them. Unfortunately, I have to treat my middle schoolers like dogs. <laughs> Sit. <laughs> And it works. Yeah. Well, that's what she did with Muhammad Ali. Um, so <laughs> Classy. But yeah, this was an incredible time period for black writers getting published. Many credit her with introducing the world to a slew of black writers that probably would not have been published if it wasn't for her. 
But Tony wasn't just planning on promoting other artists and staying in the background. She had been working on a novel since her teaching days at Howard. For the past decade, she had been getting up at 4 a.m. to write before her two children woke up. She would write every spare minute she had. Angela Davis said that when they were commuting around New York, she goes, and she goes, Tony would be, it'd be like, okay, here's a stoplight. And then she'd bring out her notebook and scribble down some more words. Like she was writing every free second that she had because she had to write while being a single mother of two and a powerhouse of the publishing world. She's just fucking doing it. Yeah. And eventually the bluest eye was finished and published in 1970 when Tony was 39 years old. The novel takes place in Lorain, Ohio, her hometown, and tells the story of a young black girl named Pecola who grew up during the Great Depression, or following the Great Depression. Set in 1941, the story is about how she is consistently regarded as ugly due to her mannerisms and dark skin. As a result, she develops an inferiority complex, which fuels her desire for the blue eyes that she equates with whiteness. Pecola's early life is fraught with trauma and sexual abuse from her father, and she believes that if she just had blue eyes, none of this would happen to her. And the book is about a lot of things, obviously, but of course, mainly how harmful racism can be and how it can be internalized, you know, and it's just, I don't know, it's, there's a lot going on here. Well, I um, mean, yeah, and in this time period, too, there's not like the same availability to black makeup, black mm-hmm. hair products, you know, like yeah. things in America that we kind of see as second nature now, like, yes. The cosmetic aisle needs things for everybody. Right. That didn't exist. It was only things for white girls. Yeah. So that's leading to you. It's not only that you're just not pretty. You don't deserve to be pretty. Like to get that extra stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, and she was talking to about how she was like, you know, I was coming about in the late 60s and the early 70s. And she was like, and I would see people with this banner that said like black is beautiful, you know, and she was like, well, yeah, but she was like, now that we've come to this realization that black is beautiful she's like let's talk about how when it wasn't when it's something that was to be ashamed of you know and and she also kind of wanted to point out i you know from what i understand like the effect that colorism has too you know Mm. and in fact like whiter black you know lighter black people like had an easier time than the darker skinned people sure sure there's just there's a lot going on there's a lot to unpack with her writings um The book had really mixed reviews when it came out, but once it started to get introduced to school curriculums, it really got some attention. The Bluest Eye has frequently landed on America Library Association's list of most challenged books. As recently as last year, the Wentzville, Missouri banned the book from school curriculums. But I would like to say that the one place the book ban was voted down was Montgomery County, Maryland. A suburban housewife tried to ban the book from school curriculum, and they said no. (laughs) This is a good fucking book. Mm -hmm. But Tony didn't care about the lukewarm reception of her book. She kept writing and published her second book, Sula, three years later. This was a book about friendship between two black women, and this would become her first book to be nominated for the National Book Award. And by the time she published her third book, Song of Solomon, in 1977, she was a household name in the black community. This book, which is one of the few that she wrote that focused on a male character, was her first commercial success. Ooh. In fact, it was the second book written by a black author to be selected 
for the Book of the Month Club. And it was the first by a black woman, which is very cool. <laughs> that is great. The only other black author was in like the 40s. <laughs> Song of Solomon also won the National Book Critics Circle Award. And with the, sex, the, with the success of this book, she could finally become a full-time writer. So now that she isn't relegated to the working hours of 4 a.m. to whenever her kids wake up, sure, Tony starts working on her next great book, what some consider her opus magnus, Beloved. But that takes uh, some time. <laughs> so in between, she writes a few more books <laughs> in her first play. This play is called Dreaming Emmett, and it is about the 1955 murder of black teenager Emmett Till. Also during this time, she was a visiting professor at various universities around New York. And then finally, in 1987, she published her most celebrated novel, Beloved. This book is based upon the real life of Margaret Garner. She is an enslaved woman in Kentucky who escaped and fled to the free state of Ohio in 1856. Um, but because of the Fugitive Slave Act, now she is she knows she's not like a hundred percent safe. Like they could still find her and take mm. her back to the slave states. Right. So the main character, Setha, makes the decision to kill her youngest child rather than see her be captured and sent back into slavery. But then she is haunted by her decision. Um, and she's literally visited by the ghosts of this child. And the book captures themes of loss and morality and the unbearable weight of the decisions that are often put upon oppressed people. Mm. You know, it's again, it's like if she wasn't black, she would never have, never have to make that decision. You don't have to make a decision to kill your child. To save them from the pain that you have just gone through. Right. Tony said that she hadn't seen any kind of memorial dedicated to the victims of the Atlantic slave trade in America yet. So in the beginning of the book, she dedicates this book to the millions of lives lost through the slave trade. And this was her way of being like, I want to memorialize this because she goes, there's not a bench like, you know, on the side of the road with a plaque on it that says this is in memory of these people. She goes, there is nothing right now. And because of her words and because of this book, memorials did start popping up all over the U.S. Mm. And, you know, because she's like, even if it's just a tree or a bench or something, like, we don't have anything right now. And a yeah. lot of people died because of this. Uh, and it's the fucking 80s, okay? Millions. Like, this is 200 years later, two, 300 years later. Yeah. So, and a lot of the memorials that popped up had quotes from beloved on it which is so great mm. have you seen the one in mississippi mm -mm. the more recent one no um i want to see if i can find it i'll find it you talk okay the book was a major success for tony both critically and commercially it was a bestseller 25 weeks in a row and started winning awards immediately but many people were upset that the book did not end up winning the National Book Award. Mm -hmm. 48 black writers and critics ended up signing a petition disagreeing with this choice, including Maya Angelou and Angela Davis. Thankfully, however, this misstep was overshadowed by her winning the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Ha! One of the highest honors for a writer, and she won this in 1988. Was she the first black woman to win it? 
Or did I just she won the Pulitzer Prize? I see. I don't think she was the first because I feel like we would have known that. Beloved was followed up by Jazz and Paradise, two other books in what she calls the Beloved Trilogy. These books are meant to be read together, but they don't exactly have to be read in order. And she said the conceptual connection is the search for the beloved, the part of the self that is you and loves you and is always there for you. She continued to win awards and write more incredible books. And then in 1989, she became a professor at Princeton University, where she worked until 2006. I knew she had to be a professor. Mm -hmm. She's been a professor this whole time. Yep. And she even had a hall named after her. There's a building named after her at Princeton. Just like Rory Gilmore. (laughs) (laughs) And then in 1993, she became the first black woman to win the Nobel Prize in Literature. That's what she's the first in. I thought she was the first Pulitzer Prize, but I was sorely mistaken. Mm -hmm. You mean the year of your birth? The year of mine. Did you bring this upon us or did she do it alone? (laughs) (laughs) Then something else incredible happens. Oprah Winfrey discovers her writing and becomes obsessed with her. Oh, she Oprah starts selecting her novels for the Oprah Book Club, which was a huge boost for Tony in the mainstream. It might not seem like that big of a deal now because a lot of celebrities have book clubs, but the Oprah Book Club was huge back in the day. This is what housewives were reading in the 90s. I mean, even still, I think when Oprah makes a choice for yeah. like the books that she's reading that year, to this day, they're the ones I pay attention to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of celebrities do it, but hers is so iconic. Yeah. that it's like, what's on the Oprah book list? Exactly. I That's just, the dream. And I feel like people who maybe don't remember this era, like, don't have a vision for, like, what it was like when it was like, oh, Oprah endorses this book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, 13 million people were average viewers on her show. Right. So that meant millions more people bought Tony's books and were exposed to her incredible writing. I mean, she won the fucking Nobel Prize, but it was the Oprah effect that sent her into the stratosphere of literature. Of course. And then in 1998, Oprah produced the film version of Beloved, of course, starring herself as Sethna. (laughs) And also had Danny Glover in it. (laughs) Oprah loves being in movies. Yes, she does. Tony received a ton of honorary degrees, including an honorary doctorate from Oxford. She was a guest curator at the Louvre in Paris. Calm down. Uh, I mean, we have covered a lot of cool women, but that accomplishment That's is a, a new first. one. Haven't seen that. I wonder if it's because there's not a lot of African-American art there. Oh. So they might have been like, let's curate that section. Because yeah. I know that... Um, uh, Frida Kahlo is the only Mexican artist, only female Mexican artist in the Louvre. Really? Altogether. That's so interesting. So I think there just might not be as much stuff from this side of the yeah. world. So maybe they're trying to like be more inclusive. Maybe. They're like, Tony, help us. <laughs> help me. Uh, but one award that we have seen quite a bit in this show, but it still does not, it doesn't mean it's bad. It's just like, you know, I just never heard President of that one. She got the freedom. freedom. <laughs> but it's cool because she got it from Barack Obama, the first black <gasps> president. She got that in 2012. A dream. A and dream. What if Trump gave it to her? She would have <laughs> no. been like, no, thank you. She was not happy when he got nom- he got elected. Who was? <laughs> um, so, and then in 2021, 
February 18th become, became Toni Morrison Day in Ohio. <laughs> in total, she wrote 11 novels, nine nonfiction books, five children's books, two short stories, and two plays. Her books have awakened and inspired people for years, and I hope that educators and librarians and parents continue to fight for their children's right to read her books. Yeah. Even though they are discussing banning them still to ban, this ban, day. ban. Horrible. Yeah. Toni Morrison passed away in New York City on August 5th, 2019 from complications of pneumonia. She was 88 years old. Mm. I wish we knew more about her personal life, but at least we have plenty of her words to keep with us. And I'll leave us with one quote from her. She said, if there is a book you really want to read but hasn't been written yet, then you must write, write it. it. <laughs> yeah, I know that quote. <laughs> um, yeah, my kids actually in Black History Month at their school, usually kids do like door decorating competitions. Um, and the person, their homeroom, they chose Toni Morrison for their homeroom. So, so they got it. So then it was like she was on my radar and I was like, why haven't we done Toni yeah. Morrison? Why yet? not? Yeah. Yeah. I Like in this thing, I wish I was intelligent enough to like really get into these books and but also like that's not what this podcast is no, about. No, no. Like I need you to know that like the documentary about her was so much of people reacting to her that it was so lovely. And moving, I'm it sure. Was yeah. moving of people who were like, I saw myself for the first time in your book. I understood like my generational trauma for the first time in your book. Especially because like she writes about like the whole like gamut of the black experience like she's not just focused on like one person or one time period or one you know gender like she really does like write about it from a lot of different angles and mm -hmm. like her the the words she uses are so beautiful like there's one kind of passage and I think it was the book jazz that like really st stuck out to me where she was like New York City where the sunlight like slices through the middle of buildings like a knife. Like, you know how like when the sun is moving yeah. and it just cuts build like, yeah, it's just so beautiful. So I just would really encourage yeah people to read her work or just like watch people's reactions to her work because it's really beautiful yeah. and moving. People who are good at descriptive text are Ugh. like amazing. I know. Yeah. All right. So. Let's talk about these two ladies together in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Okay. Well, I love <laughs> that they both left this world without personal information being left behind. As infuriating as it is. I know. Yes. It's like, I left my books <laughs> and I left my art and that's what you get the impression of me that I left on this planet. Yeah. That's so cool. It's very cool, especially because that means you can kind of take what you need from it. Yes. Because I think that be if you don't leave a specific guidebook on yourself, more mm -hmm. of like an impression, then people can see themselves in you from a lot of different angles, from a lot of different Because like these women are from the most different <laughs> backgrounds that you could possibly pick. Like a literal gilded age, double heiress. Yeah, privileged, double heiress woman who like didn't have barriers other than she wasn't allowed in some art auctions. Yeah. <laughs> and like Tony is living the exact opposite experience where like her parents um, experienced true murder. Yeah, like 
horrible, actual murder like, racial trauma like hate crime yeah just terrible and i, I loved i love though that you said at the beginning that she left it so that you can experience it no matter who you are mm -hmm. and i think that's how isabella's museum is as, as well it's not yeah. there aren't even plaques on the wall that take you away from it if you're illiterate mm -hmm. you don't have to read yeah you just have to be there yep. and see it well because i think there's something about like there's something very american mm -hmm. about both of their lives you know and the fact that you can like become a literary superstar mm -hmm. and like literally write your way out of poverty <laughs> poverty or like you can be born into money and like do something good with it. Like, you know, I just think. But she also worked her way out of womanhood. Yeah, she did. There was like mm -hmm. she there was a status that she just decided not to accept. And because of that, newspapers were constantly like she's frivolous. She's exotic. She's eccentric. And it's yeah. like, no, she's just a human being like that's passionate. Right. Well, and people would do the same thing with Tony's work. They yeah. would be like, it's too sexual. It's too this. It's too that. There aren't enough. Like, there was one critique where someone was like, well, there's not enough, like, bad white people in her books. Like, I need more of that. And at one point. That's not always yeah. the story. And at some point, Tony was like, well, I like to write books sometimes where it's like, it's the black experience without the pressure of the white gaze. <laughs> like, you know, you know? Like, why not? We also exist, like, a side of them as well. You yeah. Know? And, but I love that both of them collected items and wrote about, like, things from history to preserve it as it was mm -hmm. because Isabella's museum is all about preserving things as they are. She's like, I'm going to take literal pieces of other buildings and bring them in here so we can keep it. And I think Tony was doing that as well of like, I'm going to write these stories that they are uncomfortable. They should make you uncomfortable mm -hmm. because this shit fucking happened oh yeah and i'm gonna show it to you for better or for worse and that's why people think these women are so fucking dangerous <laughs> yeah and i think it's interesting that like isabella she was very willing to go to um the artist sergeant and jack sergeant and be like i want to see the madame x painting yeah i want to own Titian's the rape of europa mm -hmm. i want to own that and i want to display it yeah like it's that's a big statement to mm -hmm. make in your museum like the first floor of your museum is a massive picture of that yeah like you're not there's no hold bar at no. that point you're Absolutely just like not. fight like you're just swinging for the fences like everybody both of these women were like i want to show it how it is yeah not how you think it should be mm -hmm. not how it was mm -hmm. not how it sh like should be but yeah. how it is yeah. i want to put that windowsill in a windowsill yeah <laughs> i want to write this book no matter what the other cultures in the book are, I'm going to write it the way it is, mm -hmm. the way it happened. Yeah. And I also think that, again, like when you have women that do stuff like this, like they become targets mm -hmm. of things like book banning and art thievery. It's like those two things just like feel very similar to mm -hmm. me. Of like, this shouldn't, this should be mine. I'm going to take it back. And it kind of feels to me like when fragile you know, I'm I'm really generalizing here, but mm. I'm in some no. way correct. Like, do it when like fragile, like upper middle class, like white masculinity. Masculinity says like, 
no, we don't want that for our kids. They shouldn't be exposed to that. Like, this is dangerous writing. It kind of makes me feel like an art thief going in and being like, why should this be here when I can make money off of it? Mm -hmm. It feels sick and invasive and just kind of like telling a woman when she's speaking up or doing something like you shouldn't be doing that because like I'm not profiting off of it because I'm the supposed to be the majority here and what's funny is I wouldn't be as mad if somebody broke into the Egyptian museum or the British museum and stole some right. Egyptian shit yeah I'd be like well you probably shouldn't do that it's yeah. still illegal like don't sell it on the black market because other people want to see it mm-hmm. but I wouldn't be as mad because it's not owned by a person yeah. that art is owned by a person yeah like you're stealing from a person, not and like a person who's so giving to the community. Yes. And that's also what it feels like. It's with like you're banning. afraid of women with vision mm-hmm. and other people that aren't like you with vision, mm-hmm. whether it be through a visual <laughs> technique like Isabella's like, yeah. and even like Isabella's was, was even multi-sensory. She's like, I want to make sure that when people come in here, they can hear music the, the they music hear the noise. and the nuance of this place and you know obviously with tony it's like when you read her stuff it like some of the sentences she writes almost feel like music and it's funny because she said she was like you know i don't read my stuff after i write it like mm-hmm. unless i'm doing it for like a book reading mm-hmm. and she goes sometimes i'll be doing a book right reading you know and i'll be reading a passage that i wrote 20 years ago and i'm like <laughs> damn that's pretty good (laughs) (laughs) which i also love get it girl i truly believe also that both of these women were so confident in their choices Mm -hmm. that they're like i'm really good at this which i wish i could do at (laughs) any point in my life but like i think that that confidence also drives a real through line between them of like they knew that what they were doing was good and that's also why they had to preserve it as well as they did they said just <laughs> leave it like this don't yeah. fucking touch it yeah don't touch it mm-hmm. just leave it as is <laughs> they're amazing oh, oh how this. beautiful All okay right. let's toast to these women who would you like to toast i want to toast to women who use their dreams for the interest and education of other people yes so cheers cheers, cheers to both of them honestly <laughs> tonight mm. i'm gonna toast Women who write banned books. Woo! <laughs> Ban them, baby. As we speak, I have a stupid little picture frame. Katie knows this. On my mantle in the library that says, I'm with the band. And it's just on a stack of banned books. I it's love so that. stupid because I hate word art in anybody's house. Yeah. But I also was like, if I just have a stack of banned books, no one's ever going to get it except for me. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's ever going to be like, why are those books there? Yeah. So it's very important to me that when people walk by, they know why they're there. <laughs> Isabella would be furious. Yeah. No signs. Yeah. No signs. <laughs> All right. So what are you enjoying in pop culture this week two of season 15? So obviously the documentary. You yeah. have to watch it. It's called This is a Robbery, which is a terrible name. But that's like what the two police officer guys said once they had the guys handcuffed in the main office. But that's not what I'm promoing. Just go and watch that. Okay. What I'm promoing is we're all getting ready for summer season. And I found the lowest calorie enjoyable cocktail. It's a gin and tonic. But it's gin and sparkling water so like a flavored sparkling water like LaCroix or bubbly or whatever and then a little bit of lime juice 
It's definitely not this cocktail with evaporated milk. No. <laughs> or sweetened condensed this milk. This cocktail is a thousand million. Ca- <laughs> this is my whole day worth of calories in one drink. Um, but yeah, I just think um, everybody like tries to just immediately cut drinking, which is uh-huh. good. You should always, if you want to limit your drinking, of course, limit your drinking. But you can stop drinking red wine and Cosmos and old fashions that have mm-hmm. sugar in them and like straight liquor, like gin and vodka doesn't have any carbs it doesn't convert to sugar mm-hmm. so you can drink you it go. with like some diet tonic and yeah. some lime juice and you're kind of in the clear you're like a 25 <laughs> calorie drink at that point <laughs> so you can get drunk for limited calories there you go. i'm here to promote <laughs> slim drunkness okay <laughs> go right. ahead i'm gonna promote an album so one of my big things in my home is I love to collect Better Homes and Gardens and Martha Stewart Living magazines. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I like to reread issues. And I was rereading an issue and they had promoted this album from an artist called Arlo Parks. Mm. And the album is called Collapsed in Sunbeams. Is it really great? It's so good. It's the exact thing you want to listen to in spring when like the windows are open in your house. The sun is shining and you're just like folding laundry and things feel nice. It's just like really jazzy and calm and like feels kind of lo-fi. Like it's really fucking good. Um, and I just like music like that that doesn't put a lot of pressure on you. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah, it was just it's just a really beautiful, nice feeling album and one of the songs is now my alarm that i wake up to every morning because it's so gentle what a promotion (laughs) i know what a promotion that's a big deal so yeah arlo parks collapsed in sunbeams that's great so good all right well thank you all for listening to this week uh be like mel or lem and just review us on apple Podcasts if you have a free moment this week join our patron be a part of it we put up extra stuff Mm -hmm. um and it helps us buy the alcohol it it just helps participate in the community of women's history that we have Mm -hmm. uh so it's really nice when you join us over there it's fun i mean for one dollar a month twelve dollars a year just think about that twelve dollars a year you can experience so much more of this and be a part of all the other amazing listeners we have. It's the best. Um, So yeah, join us there. We're on Instagram and Facebook and all the other places as well. Um, You can take our quiz every week and try and guess who made each cocktail, which is very fun. They got it right this week. They did get it right this week. Everybody did. Good job. Um, But mostly, we want you to never forget that well-behaved women Follow social customs. Yeah, and they rarely make history. Bye. Bye.